These days, autistic people and their families are coming up with new ways to understand autism's unique gifts and challenges. Among other things, that means making the environment more inclusive for people with different minds and bodies. So to understand what disability justice means, to incorporate that into our work means not treating our lives or our communities as single issue. It means recognizing the whole humanity of every person. That's Lydia XC Brown, an autistic activist, organizer, and lawyer. They spoke at the Colorado Trust, an organization that focuses on health equity. It's not merely about checking the boxes. Do you have the sign language interpreter? Do you have the ramp? It's about making sure that individuals in your communities and in your work actually feel welcome without having to check pieces of themselves at the door. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we talk to autistic adults, plus parents and educators of autistic young people, about how they're building a more accessible world. Later in the show, how designing classrooms for autistic students can benefit all students, and how children's museums can include autistic patrons in their exhibits. But first, when she noted that her young daughter had delayed speech and dramatic meltdowns, Professor Jen Malia went looking for answers. She discovered her daughter was autistic, but she also discovered something else, that she was also autistic. Now she's written a children's book that stars an autistic girl. Jen, the children's book you wrote is called Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism. Why too sticky? Well, with my own experience as a child, I had some sensory issues and too sticky was just um, something that I think a lot of kids that are um, autistic have trouble with, both myself and my daughter. We have trouble, you know, touching sticky things and want to wash our hands constantly. So I thought that that would be a good um, sensory issue to write about for children. The book is loosely based on your own experience. Yes. I didn't know I was autistic when I was a child. I wasn't diagnosed until I was an adult. But when I was looking for children's books for both myself and my kids, I had a lot of trouble finding books that were representing autistic characters in a way that was positive. So that was one of the reasons that I set out to write a book. What do you now realize about the young you that had symptoms of autism? Well, when I was younger, um, I mean, in my generation, now I'm 43, but in my generation, unless you had a severe case of autism, you know, normally you would not have been diagnosed. So at that time, I was very shy as a child. Um, I had difficulty communicating. I'd often sit in classrooms um, being completely silent and not interacting much unless I was really comfortable, you know, with, you know, a couple of friends that I had. But um, for the most part, you know, growing up, I knew that there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And I knew that I had these sensory issues. I had trouble walking on like hardwood or tile floors and just a lot of different sensory issues and difficulty communicating. Also, as a child, I used to line up all of my toys, not even realizing that that alone could be uh, an autistic trait, but now that I know <laughs> that that's something that's pretty common, um, you know, what I did was I actually learned how to play with toys from my, I had a, a brother growing up and he taught me how to play with his Star Wars toys. That's how I learned how to play. How can we understand it better? How was what you experienced, not tidiness, um, fastidiousness and shyness? Right. Um, I think that there's not really a look to autism. A lot of people have a sort of stereotypical view of what autism is. And I have to admit that until I got diagnosed, which was about three years ago, I myself had a very stereotypical view of autism. It was what I saw on Rain Man. You know, that's that's what I had a vision of um, someone that's, you know, very isolated and doesn't really communicate much with the outer world. And, and also statistically, for every four boys that are diagnosed, only one girl is diagnosed autism presents differently in females. And so now there are a lot of girls and women being diagnosed that weren't or wouldn't have been, you know, in the past. What prompted you to have a self-diagnosis of autism so late in your life? Well, honestly, I wasn't actually looking to, like at the time, I was looking to figure out what was going on with my daughter. Um, I have three kids, and my second child, when she was two years old, I noticed there was a lot of behavior issues, but also, you know, these sensory issues. She had a language delay. 
But when I would take her to doctors to try to figure out what was going on, I was constantly told that she had just a language delay. And I knew there was a lot more to that. So what I started doing is um, I researched you know, being a, a PhD, you know, one thing I was good at was research. So I spent <laughs> a lot of time, you know, reading hundreds of medical articles. It's not my field, but I knew that I needed to do that to figure out what was going on. And so what I discovered was that, you know, the only thing that kept coming up with all the things that I noticed that was going on with her was, was autism spectrum disorder. And then I realized, you know, probably a couple hundred hours more of research that, well, I was on the spectrum too. Huh. What did you see in your two-year-old that went beyond what you thought was language delay? Well, we would have these, um, she had a lot of episodes where a lot of people you know, referred to as autistic meltdowns where she would be crying and kicking and screaming. And I could tell that there was a lot more going on than just a tantrum. So the main thing that I think is different with a tantrum, which she was two years old at the time, which is pretty common for a two-year-old, mm-hmm. and a meltdown is that it was a lot more severe. And it wasn't the type of thing where, you know, if she she wanted something and if you gave her that, let's say she asked for a toy, you know, a two-year-old can have a, a tantrum if you take that toy away. But with an autistic meltdown, even if you give the toy back, there's going to be a continuation of this kind of emotional breakdown, a sort of sensory overload, because at that point, if I gave my daughter the toy back, it would be too late because she can't control or, you know, emotionally regulate. So in your children's book, Two Sticky Sensory Issues with Autism, you're trying to help children, parents, educators really understand autism better. Yes. um, I would say that the main purpose that I have or main goal that I have with this book is not only to raise autism awareness, but also acceptance. And I think that second part is really important because I, for one, consider autism part of my identity. And so I, I like to refer to myself as an autistic woman, autistic mother, not just a person with autism, which is um, person first language is actually preferred by the medical community, but a lot of the autistic community prefer identity first language because we can't separate the autism from who we are. You know, my experiences are all through an autistic lens. So every experience that I've ever had has been based on my own experiences with, you know, having autism. And so when I think about one of the goals that I have for writing the book, it's specifically is to write a book for the autistic community, for autistic children who want to see some part of themselves in the book and can identify with the character who's going about her everyday life, which is what exactly what we need to do every day. Are there many other children's books about autistic children? There are some other um, children's picture books that are written um, by neurotypical authors, but there are very few that are written from the perspective of someone, you know, who, who is living with autism. You know, you must have so many people come up to you through all your writing in the, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Women's Day. You must have so many people saying, thank you. I so relate both for myself and my children. Yeah, in fact, I have a lot of readers that reach out to me. Um, they, you know, they'll message me on my Facebook page and tell me that they were able to get diagnosed or they were able to get their, you know, sons or daughters diagnosed. I even had someone that I went to school with in middle school who reached out to me, and he just happened to come across an article he had read, um, and this was recently. And um, he sought his his own diagnosis. It was something that, you know, for him, he had you know, had gone through therapy as a child, but also was not diagnosed. And then he's looking into uh, potentially getting his uh, daughter screened as well. What advice would you have for parents and children to recognize these character traits in children and colleagues and account for them? You know, be, be more understanding and accepting. Yeah, I think that a lot of times with, you know, especially if, you know, my my kids are more on the mild part of the spectrum and I am as well. And I think a lot of times the reaction that I get when I, you know, mention that either, you know, myself or my kids are 
on the autism spectrum, it's something like, well, you seem to be doing fine. Like you have, you know, you're a professor and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, your kids are, you know, interacting really well with other kids here at the school. And, uh, and a lot of times that's great, you know, that we are able to do all of these things, of course, but sometimes, you know, it kind of, sort of pushes to the side the fact that we are, you know, having a lot of challenges that we that we have to deal with and to kind of, you know, dismiss it as well. You know, sometimes I'll hear things like, well, everybody is a little autistic, aren't they? You know, a lot of people who have PhDs and are studying intently and have hyper-focused interests and things <laughs> like that. And that is true. Sometimes there are definitely some people that are on the spectrum that are getting PhDs that, you know, may or may not want to pursue a diagnosis or just have autistic traits. But from the perspective of someone like myself who's diagnosed and does have significant challenges, and my kids do as well, um, acknowledging that, you know, we are different and we do need accommodation sometimes. And that even if, you know, if we look like we're doing just fine on the outside, sometimes there's things that are, you know, that we're holding in on the inside that are really difficult for us. People are afraid to assume a work colleague or a child has autism. Yeah, I think that's true that there's um, still a lot of stigma about, you know, a lot of people I know don't actually want their, you know, writers who don't want to, um, you know, identify that their children are autistic if they're writing about them. Um, I I have treated it with my own family. I've been very open, of course, you know, writing articles about it and also, you know, all of my colleagues um, they know because I mean I go to readings and I read about being autistic. Um, but I've I've treated it as something that I'm proud of, and I know that um, you know everybody has their own preferences as to whether or not they want to be openly autistic. But for me, as I said, it's part of my identity, and I don't ever want my children to feel ashamed of being autistic. I want them to also be proud. Well, Jen Malia, thank you for sharing your insights on autism on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Jen Melia is an English professor at Norfolk State University. She's also the author of Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism. Coming up next, how museums can design autism-accessible spaces. Jackie Spanauer is a museum professional and the mother of an autistic son. Now she's working on a research project about how museums can improve accessibility for autistic people. Jackie, you recently had a bad experience taking your three-year-old son to a children's museum. What happened? I did, actually. So my three-year-old is on the autism spectrum, and my husband and I thought that the best place to take him would be somewhere already suited for children. So we decided to take him to a local children's museum, and there were a number of barriers there that we weren't expecting. Children who have autism tend to dart. They're a flight risk. And so when you go into a space that doesn't have areas that are blocked off or that don't have doorways, then your child is really free to run and dart and roam everywhere. And as a parent, you end up literally chasing them throughout the facility, and then they're not really learning anything or getting much from that experience other than you getting a 30-minute workout. Another issue that we had is they have this wonderful bubble room that I can remember going to as a child, and I knew my son loved bubbles and would love that room. And unfortunately, children with autism tend to zone in on one particular thing that they are fixated on. And there was this large place where they had the bubble liquid and they had multiple wands in that particular area. And each wand had a different color and had different shapes that it made. So the first time that we went in, my son zoned in on this particular wand, and that's the only one that he wanted to play with. And he had a great time. But then when we left that area and we came back, there was another child playing with that wand. And so you can imagine the meltdown that ensued because all of those wands were different, and he wanted the pink one with the triangles instead of the yellow one with the circles. So what ended up happening is we just had to remove him from that situation, and we ended up taking him to a part of the facility that was actually designated for infants. So he was a little old for it, but that particular area had a door. So we ended up staying there in a spot that really 
wasn't great for his learning and didn't allow him to use the space wisely. So we were very disappointed with the experience. I don't think that it accommodates children on the spectrum very well, that particular facility. And to be honest, I'm not really sure if we'll go back. That's so interesting. A place where you had gone and loved as a child did not work for your own child. Yeah. What's another example of something kind of common in children's spaces that doesn't work for a lot of kids on the autism spectrum? Sure. When I went to the Children's Museum, once again, there was a section that had these tubes that children could climb into, which, of course, we all associate with childhood. We remember playing in those tubes at a McDonald's or some other place as a child. And it's not a great place for your child with autism because a lot of children on the spectrum do not either know their names or they are unable to communicate when they get stuck. And so my child was climbing in these tubes and getting in the very back of them, and I, as an adult, would have had had a very difficult time trying to get to him if I needed to. So those, although they work well for neurotypical children, children with autism, it's a little bit more difficult. You really have to think about safety with children with autism, and you have to make sure that you're thinking about how parents can have easy access and line of vision with their child at all times. And I was surprised that we had that kind of issue again at a children's museum where you would think these accommodations were already in place. I can see how museums could get it wrong and never realize it. There are some museums that are working really hard to make accommodations at their facilities to ensure that children on the spectrum are able to come and be comfortable. There's been some museums that I've been to that have started creating spaces with different types of seating for like a children's reading group or places when they're doing crafts. They're more mindful of the fact that children with autism who are younger tend to explore with their mouths and they'll eat everything. So they have bigger beads or they have uh, pipe cleaners because they're better for dexterity as opposed to having a piece of string that you have to actually tie a knot. So there are some facilities that are trying to incorporate those things and are getting them done well. But I personally have not visited a children's museum that I feel like is really doing it well. Name one that you've come across that was doing it the best you've seen so far. So I've been writing a book called Museums and Millennials. And as part of that research, I interviewed someone from the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. They are a relatively new museum that's out in Arkansas. And they have a variety of families, specifically African-American families. They're an African-American cultural center that are coming to their facility almost daily. And they are serving them very well. And they realized that they had a lot of children that were coming that were on the spectrum and that they needed to make changes so that those families felt comfortable. So they are the ones that I've personally talked to that are really just doing wonderful. They're doing trainings constantly with their staff. But they're also recognizing that children with autism have difficulty staying on task and they have difficulty following directions. So when they're having an event or something, they actually use colored duct tape and they put it on the ground to tell the child, follow the yellow duct tape, and then they'll end up at a stop sign and then they'll do an activity. And then at that point, they'll say, please follow the blue tape and they'll go to another stop sign. So they're doing a really nice job of using nonverbal cues to communicate with a population that has a lot of nonverbal people. And honestly, if if you work for a museum facility and you don't know where to start, the best thing to do is to find your local autism community. You can do that by calling a developmental pediatrician's office. They often can direct you to all of the local resources. There's many national groups that have local chapters. So the best thing to do is to educate yourself in order to make those accommodations and ask that group what they need so that they can come and enjoy your facility. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this because I know how much parents love reading hours at libraries for children, children's museums, places where they can take their children and have a blast and get outside the home. And if you need that for children without the sensory needs, just imagine Mm -hmm. how much the parents of children on the spectrum extra need it, right? Right, right. I'm part of a number of Facebook groups and things, and daily, I mean daily, multiple times a day, I'm seeing people post about their young child and how they're unable to find anything social for them to do. And we love getting our our children together who have sensory issues, but still, again, our, our main fight is for inclusion and 
I think if we keep segregating our children with autism and ADHD and Down syndrome and all of these other special needs from mainstream children, then we're really doing a disservice to mainstream children and families because we have so much to teach them. They have so much to teach us. And as we're, you know, living in a world now that is so politically charged and there's this huge lack of compassion, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get all of these kids to grow up together and realize that different is beautiful and to ensure that all of our our children could grow up in a world where compassion was king. Jackie Spainauer is vice president of the Hunter House Victorian Museum in Norfolk, Virginia and a recipient of the Virginia Association of Museums Leadership and Advocacy Fellowship. Like museums, schools can sometimes be inaccessible for autistic learners. Radford University Professor of Special Education Leslie Daniel wants to change that. She has some ideas for designing more autism-friendly classrooms. Some of my favorite strategies, and I have a few go-to ones, uh, using visual supports, Uh, is probably one of my number ones, and that includes giving somebody a visual schedule, whether that be with pictures or just written words or a combination, to let somebody know, hey, here's what's happening through the day. Sometimes we think, oh, they get it now. The person with autism doesn't need the visual anymore. And they don't on an average day, perhaps. But then comes the the out-of-the-average day. You know, there's a snowstorm, and they've uh, got a two-hour delay to get to school. So when they get to school, there's no breakfast served. Well, they're used to getting to school and having breakfast, and people with autism often rely on routine. So a visual can help them see, okay, we got here late, so this is where we are on the schedule now. Another favorite for me is using wait time. And wait time is when you ask a question or give a direction and then shut up. So if I say, pick up your pencil, Usually teachers are like, come on, John, I said pick up your pencil. Where's your pencil? Don't you have a pencil? Well, the kid with autism is processing. And they're still on the first one, and now you've said it three more times, and they got to process it. They're not being noncompliant. Their brains are slowly processing what you said, and particularly if you've gotten louder or angrier. They've got to process, wait, there's another voice. It's a different voice. What does that mean? So I teach my students as a rule of thumb to wait for 15 seconds. Now, most teachers wait a little less than two seconds before giving redirect. So 15 seconds can seem like a long time. So I teach my kids to, my students, to count their Mississippis. A good rule of thumb I like to teach my students is to wait for 15 seconds, counting their Mississippis, letting the person process. Now, some people... And, and what I teach people is to pay attention to when did they process. So it might really be that the person needed four seconds. Or, you know, I've worked with somebody um, who had a five-minute processing. Now, you can't wait five minutes in a classroom. You can wait 15 seconds, particularly if you're preparing all of the students, hey, we're going to wait until everybody's had time to think. Let's try it out. I just want to see what that feels like. Let's just do 10 seconds. Okay. So that's five. And that's 10. Wow. That's a big, big pause. It's actually nice, isn't it? It's nice to have a pause. It's nice. And and so going back to I try and teach my students um, not just that it's good for people with autism, but it is good for all kids because we don't give enough think time in general. You've also said one of your soapboxes is about friendships, how teachers can work to build relationships between neurotypical students and students with autism. Yes, and I don't like fake friendships. I don't want to say, oh, you have to be this person's friend today. But um, I like building opportunities for friendships to grow a little more naturally. But people with autism might need a little help to get to know other people. They don't necessarily um, know the rules of certain aspects of friendship. And the thing is, kids need to be with other kids to learn those rules. But somebody who doesn't know the rules 
doesn't have an easy time being with other kids. So it's they're caught in a catch-22 sometimes. So I like building groups. Um, I like building varied groups. Uh, in my own college classroom, I, you know, change up groupings on a very regular basis. Sometimes you should get to work with your friends or the people you're sitting nearest to. And sometimes, hey, let's let you get to know somebody else and learn a little bit about them because they won't necessarily be so um, other if you've been in a group and you've gotten to talk with them and you've learned their name. You know, so teachers can be mindful of helping people foster relationships. Isn't it a big problem if the children don't realize this other children is coping with autism and instead just feel bothered? Sure, absolutely. And sometimes with parent permission and child permission, I have, um, when I was in a K-12 classroom, said, okay, here's what's going on with this person, but only if I have parent and child permission. Right. Because, you know, you can't disclose somebody's disability. So um, if I can share more about that and then share also from the perspective of we all have differences. I wear glasses, for instance. I'm also very tall for a woman. So talking about how that impacts my day um, and then and talking about what autism is. And there's some wonderful storybooks that, that people can get and read with classes, again, with family permission and with and without the person with autism there. Sometimes you might want to have a more difficult conversation that the person would rather not be around for. But as much as possible, I like to celebrate. You know, autism comes with a lot of strengths. I'm super curious about the strengths. Yes. So autism, um, some people with autism have an incredible focus, um, an incredible eye for detail that they can hone in on and um, use that as a big strength. So Autism is not just about weaknesses and deficits. It comes with skills that that many of us wish we had. I had one former student who could look down at the ground and um, see a four-leaf clover and pick it up. Yeah. He became incredibly popular on the trip to Monticello one year when <laughs> in about two hours he found nine four-leaf clovers. I've never once in my life found a four-leaf clover though I have looked. <laughs> and <laughs> right. he can just bend down and because he that's his eye for detail. He can see in a field of green clovers the one that is four leaf. And and I know a lot of people with autism who would not do without their autism. I am not somebody who wants to cure autism. I like people with autism, but I do want to help people with autism be comfortable in the life that they choose to live and to have the skills that they want. Well, Leslie Daniel, this is fascinating. Thank you for sharing with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. Leslie Daniel is a professor of special education at Radford University and teaches in the Autism Studies Certificate Program. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. At about 3 p.m., fast food restaurants across the country start filling up with teenagers. Burgers and fries seem to go hand in hand with kids. What is it that draws them to fast food joints? To learn more about the eating habits of teenagers, George Mason University sociologist Amy Best went straight to the source. Through careful observation in cafeterias and fast food joints, Best gained some insights into why kids eat what they eat and ways to push them to make better choices. Amy, where were you when you first started thinking about kids in fast food? I was actually at a fast food restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> because you were hungry or because you were observing? I, well, I, I actually went there just to eat. And I got myself some food, and I was sitting down to do some grading, and I looked around, and it was right at the end of the school day, and all of a sudden, there was just a flood of kids. And I had just come off of another research project, and I thought, wow, what's going on here? This is really interesting. And I went back a couple more times, and then I thought, hmm, I wonder if it's like this in other places. What did you notice about kids who go to Chipotle? What was happening as they were enjoying meals in groups? I noticed lots of food talk that was really interesting about 
kids' identities as girls and boys. I saw lots of food sharing that seemed to be about friendships and friendship groups. I saw lots of gifting that was occurring. Interestingly, I did not see a lot of gifting that went from boys to girls, but I saw lots that went from girls to boys, and I saw some that went from boys to boys. Oh, and girls to girls, of course. Of course. What do you make of the way girls see food and the way boys see food when it comes to sharing? So boys don't always want to share their food. <laughs> yeah. Um, and girls were much more willing to share their food. In fact, one time I was in a school that was a school where kids, the only way they could gain access to soda was by bringing it in from home. And there was a boy had a can of soda, which he didn't want. It was a Coca-Cola. And he offered it to a girl. And a girl with such surprise said, me? And he ended up giving it to her. And she received it very happily as a gift from him. And that was one of the only occasions that I watched a boy give food to a girl. Now, for me, I think this is about how girls learn to be the givers of food and boys learn to be the receivers of food. You went to a number of restaurants. In particular, which fast food places did you tend to observe? So in the beginning, I went to lots of different places. Chipotle, Baskin-Robbins, Dairy Queen, Panera, McDonald's, of course. And I ended up narrowing my focus and spent time in four different McDonald's, all a close walk within a block of high schools. In fact, I will often joke that if you want to find a McDonald's, all you need to do is find a high school. Really? They are in close distance. And um, and then I also went to Chipotle and really focused on one Chipotle and these few McDonald's and found these very interesting scenes. So one of the McDonald's that I went to, which is across the street from a school that primarily serves upper-income kids, it's in a, in a wealthy community, I got there expecting to see kids after school because I had seen kids after school in these other McDonald's, only to find that there was mostly retired hmm. um, immigrant populations there. McDonald's didn't have a lot of appeal for these kids. And when I talked to them in interviews, I found that most of the girls said, Ugh, McDonald's, that's unhealthy. That might be okay for boys, but we wouldn't go there. Where'd you find they were going? So they would go to what I would consider the higher-end fast food. There's fast food that's um, made with organic ingredients and sustainable meats. And then there's fast food that is sort of the standard mass-produced fast food uh, where health considerations are not really on the menu. What did you what did you come to see over these months of hanging out with kids hanging out in fast food places that regardless of income seemed to be the draw? Yeah, so food spaces are inexpensive uh, to access for most kids. You can go to a McDonald's and actually not buy anything, um, which is unlike other kinds of sit-down restaurants where you are really expected to order something off the menu. But McDonald's, you don't need to do that. And so that means that access is pretty easy for them. And for lots of these places, it's pretty inexpensive, even if you are buying french fries or a burger. And that has a lot of appeal for young folks who disposable income has grown, um, but they don't have the same kind of disposable income that uh, working parents have. And so they are looking for spaces where they can spend time that's outside of school and outside of home. And these commercial places are appealing in that regard. You spent so much time watching them. Did you come to realize that actually it's super <laughs> good for them to have these spaces? Yes, these are places where kids go and they chit-chat about life. Um, there's a kind of performance in play at these places. Some of these places get really, really rowdy after school, hmm. um, which is really interesting. I mean, I think that parents are sort of, and other adults are kind of running for the hills. They walk in and maybe turn around because <laughs> they see that these are places that are, are sort of overrun by teenagers. And... Um, and that's part of the appeal for young folks, too, is to be in a space. Most of the adults in these settings are behind counters. They're not at the tables with kids. And so they become these opportunities for kids to uh, really do the work of being a teenager. And sometimes we forget that part of, I mean, a really central part of doing the work of a teenager is figuring out who you are. And peers are really important to that. 
at some point you started to talk to the kids about what their relationship with food was at home, how their families share meals or don't. Right. And then there was a lot of, they had a lot to say. And in a nutshell, what I found is that it's really, really hard for families today across the income spectrum to get a meal on the table, certainly every day. And that a lot of families are outsourcing or going to places outside of home uh, to get a meal. And some of that is driven by the fact that parents work and uh, whether you're talking about a family where you have one parent or you're talking about a family with two parents, parents are working. So, But we know that. Um, I think what we're less aware of is that kids' lives have grown busier and busier in the last decades, and that is particularly pronounced for upper-income kids. And that's one of the reasons why you see upper-income kids spending more time in fast-food restaurants, even though they're not marketed uh, as aggressively as uh, lower-income kids. Do you see more upper-income kids in fast-food restaurants? Well, I I do, yeah. but there is some interesting data that's not a part of my own data, but I did find that my interviews supported what the U.S. Census has found through their immuni- American Community Survey, which is that the lower the income, the greater likelihood to eat at home with your younger children, and that the higher the income, the greater likelihood to not eat at home. You did so much of your watching children eating and conversing and being with each other in school over meals and in fast food places over meals. What did you notice about the healthiness of the options available to them or what they chose or what they understood? I think the assumption is that kids, when they're in school, don't eat healthy food. And I did not find that. So one of the things that I did when I was in the schools, and I've spent lots of time in high schools, but also elementary schools, is I spend time looking through the garbage to see what gets thrown out. And I find that when you give a six or seven-year-old a pear that has not been cut up, that pear will go in the garbage. But if you give a six or seven-year-old a pear or an orange that has been sliced and is easy for them to eat, they will eat it. We know that uh, young people, when they're surveyed, that they do prioritize fresh fruit and, well, less vegetables, but fresh fruits in school over things like soda and candy. And one of the schools that I observed, uh, one of the lunch ladies took me through the way that they had set up the salad bar. They had made sure to have the vegetables be in the front row and all of the goodies like the dried cranberries and breadcrumbs in the back <laughs> um, because they had found from the research that they did is that if you put the vegetables first, kids are more likely to take them. Mm. And so that was like a really thoughtful effort on the part of this school to prioritize vegetables with good effect. You also talked with a lot of organizations trying to get kids to eat healthier and teach Mm -hmm. them and show them. Anything else that you can share with us that you learned from this amazing immersion in the world of children and food? So I would say this, there's, you know, foods on our mind. And we have spent a lot of time in the last, I don't know, since 2008, talking about how to get kids to eat healthier foods. And I think that programs that deal with the sort of intangibles, programs that can build in meaningful shared rituals, like one of the programs I observed, all of the kids, when they tried new food, they always took the first bite together. (laughs) And that was just a rule. And it was so effective in creating a shared moment for those kids that they all would bite together. They would offer an evaluation. And what I found is that those kids asked for seconds and they asked for thirds, and it really didn't matter what they were eating. Fascinating. Amy Best, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Amy Best is a sociologist at George Mason University. Her book on the subject is called Fast Food Kids, French Fries, Lunch Lines, and Social Ties. Coming up next, why cocooning after concussion should be a thing of the past. 
If you ever got a concussion as a kid, doctors might have recommended cocooning. That's staying in a dark room, no reading, no TV. Don't use your brain at all. My next guest, Bob O'Connor, is chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Emergency Medicine. He's recently published new guidelines that say kids should actually return to normal activity as soon as possible after concussion. Bob, what exactly is a concussion? Can you ever just get a hard knock in your head and not have had a concussion? Well, that's what a concussion is. It's a hard knock in the head, whether it's a headache or variable symptoms, the person may be knocked unconscious. So pretty much any hard knock to the head is a concussion. What about teenagers who do headers in soccer? Are those always concussions? That's a great question. We're wondering if the cumulative effect of uh, headers repeated a thousand times over a soccer career could have some effect. That plus soccer players uh, tend to be going head first for the ball. And when two players get there at the same time, guess what happens? They knock heads. And that's how uh, soccer is uh, really one of the big sports where concussions happen. If people get multiple mild concussions back-to-back, that could have a more severe effect than uh, a traumatic brain injury even or a severe concussion. What can happen to the brain? Most likely it's what? Brain bleeding? Uh, It could be brain bleeding. That's a more severe form of head injury that we talk about. Concussions more or less uh, may not involve bleeding. It may just be a knock to the head where someone uh, is unconscious for a few seconds, or they may have headaches afterwards or some other symptom. They may uh, have trouble focusing on a computer screen. They may have trouble uh, concentrating in class. So if their brain didn't bleed, what happened in their brain that led them to hurt or not focus or have double vision? Yeah, the brain, uh, whenever that happens, we think that there's some shearing force that happens where uh, neurons are actually disrupted in part of the brain. Now, the brain will heal and people do recover from concussions, but it's important during that time period to minimize the subsequent injury and really promote uh, the healing process. Is most of the damage done when we hurt the front of our head? I assume most of our head injuries are to the forehead and up near the sides. And are those the only injuries that give us concussions? Uh, Pretty much any strike to the head, anywhere. I think people tend to think of uh, blows to the side of the head as being more severe, but it's it's really any part of the brain that could be hit. You know, I I saw a um, a college student who uh, was 18 years old who slipped on the stairs and her feet went out from under her and she struck the back of her head. So she had a concussion because when she came in, she was experiencing headaches, had vomited a couple times. Uh, She was there with her her mom who drove from their home to come down and see her because of what happened. And I think after her mother heard the the symptoms and how the injury occurred, that they brought her into the hospital to get checked out. So by the time we saw her, she was uh, awake, alert, was able to converse, seemed to be thinking fairly clearly. So it's a classic case of a a mild concussion, you would think, because she was able to be discharged without any further uh, workup, and we just watched her. Are children more vulnerable to the effects of having had a blow to the head than grown-ups are? We're uh, much more concerned about We think that children uh, are more susceptible, especially during development. It's hard to prove that one way or the other. I think all ages are susceptible to, to concussion. What we're worried about with children is that the concussion, uh, we want to make sure that they have time to recover from it before they resume sports activities or resume other activities that might uh, result in a concussion. But we think the children are more sensitive to it. What prompted you and others to come out with the latest new guidelines? There are five specific recommendations that you're making. Why did you decide, let's change the rules? Well, we didn't so much change the rules as we tried to find every available bit of evidence that was out there. We didn't create any new information. We tried to instead distill all the information that was out there into one set of guidelines. And the reason we did that is because there was so much uh, confusion on the part of uh, parents and healthcare providers over how do you properly manage these. And there's also uh, a renewed interest in it. You know, concussion is is uh, an area that is a very hot topic now, especially because of boxing, professional football, childhood soccer, you know, high school soccer injuries are a big one. Ice hockey is another one. 
What was the confusion before? What sorts of things were doctors uncertain about when it came to evaluating somebody who might have a concussion? Well, there's uh, earlier in my career when uh, CT scans became very um, uh, widespread, we, we had a very low threshold for uh, using the CAT scan to image uh, patients. I think we did a lot in cases that were not necessary. Uh, over the subsequent years, we've been able to develop guidelines that better predict who will have a a finding on CAT scans so that we could forego imaging in uh, a lot of patients with minor concussions. So new recommendation number one is, especially with children, do not just automatically x-ray. That's correct. We want to uh, do a much more disciplined approach where we evaluate them for high risk factors. And in the absence of those, the risk of uh, finding something on CAT scan is virtually zero. So we instead have the Parents follow up after discharge with their pediatrician to watch the child for development of subsequent uh, vomiting, severe headache, um, you know, other worrisome symptoms. What is the test that you routinely do with children short of x-raying their brains? Well, we do a complete history and physical exam. You want to uh, make sure that there wasn't a prolonged loss of consciousness, that they hadn't experienced repeated vomiting at the scene, that their mental status was normal prior to uh, arrival. Then you do a physical exam, which consists of looking at uh, you know their motor activity, their speech. Have you ever done that and gotten slurred speech? Yes. Or you, uh, in severe cases, you'd have someone who's just making making no sense. You ask them what they had for lunch, and their response is something different. And that's very concerning. That's very concerning. And usually in those children, then we will go ahead with imaging. Or if they uh, can't follow simple commands, such as you know, raise your right hand or touch your nose, or move your left foot, then we would go ahead with scanning. What about for babies who can't respond to your questions? Right. Um, for uh, children who aren't verbal, then we will look at how they're, uh, probably how they're feeding, what they're, uh, how content they appear, how consolable they are with the mother. We'll ask the parents if they seem like they're behaving normally. You can't talk to them when they're pre-verbal but you can observe simple, simple things. Of the five, the recommendation that surprised me the most is the one where you say that children should return to normal activity in two or three days at the most after a concussion. I feel like there was a period where we were recommending a longer sort of cocooning stage where they lie absolutely still and do nothing. It's the other part of why we um, looked at these guidelines is to try to answer that question because it used to be that children were, it was recommended that they experience cognitive rest. That was the term that the healthcare professionals use. Uh, what that means is you want to uh, limit exposure to computers, anything that requires thinking, or I don't think it's even achievable uh, to, to get to that point. So what we're recommending is that the child resume normal activities within two or three days, but then if some activity causes uh, a recurrence of symptoms. For example, if when they're on the computer, they experience a headache, that we have them limit that activity, but resume everything else. And what about returning to actual sports and really hardcore activities? Yeah, that's a, a bigger question. And there I would recommend rest until uh, some period of time that they were deemed normal on follow-up with their, their doctor. Usually, uh, again, there's not evidence to say that two weeks is better than three weeks, but there's some period of time when they should rest after a concussion. And a lot depends on the severity of the, the concussion, too. If they experience loss of consciousness, uh, amnesia, or having prolonged headaches or uh, other symptoms afterwards, then I would, I think most doctors would recommend a longer uh, duration of rest. You mentioned earlier back-to-back -back concussions. Is it dramatically more harmful when they come in close succession like that? Yeah, the, the thinking is that they really are, that the cumulative effect of two back-to-back -back concussions is worse than either one alone or worse than a more severe one to begin with. Most of the evidence indicates that the, the people who suffer from long-term consequences of concussion have had back-to-back -back ones. Uh, certainly the symptoms in the second one are more severe. How many years have you treated young people in emergency rooms? About 32 years. You know, after seeing all these children over all those years, have you concluded, my kids are never going to play blank? <laughs> Great question. I was thinking about putting them in bubble wrap when they were born, but that, that's <laughs> it's obviously never going to happen. Yeah. Um, I did um, experience uh, this with my uh, my son. I was at home one day. He was out just learning how to ride a bike, and my neighbor came uh, uh, running up to the front door with my son, and the bike's laying in the middle of the street. 
And the neighbor told me that uh, my son had run into the mailbox and he was wearing a helmet. And he hands me the helmet and there's this giant dent in the helmet that clearly would have caused a scalp laceration or some other injury. And he had absolutely no uh, no injury. Huh. What's your best advice for preventing concussions? That's uh, that's where all this, uh, it's not really in the guidelines, but the basic thing is to prevent the concussion from happening in the first place. If you think of the example with my son wearing the helmet, obviously helmets are, are key if you're, say, skiing, snowboarding, cycling, engaged in some sport where there's a, uh, a chance that you might fall and hit your head. Uh, the other thing that people don't necessarily think of in the context of concussion prevention are car seats. Uh, I, of course, advise all parents to have age-appropriate car seats for their kids because even with a uh, motor vehicle crash, the chance of a concussion is much higher if they're not properly restrained, plus the chance of more serious injury is much higher. So I'd say absolutely prevention is the key. So I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be at the point where I never see the child who bangs their head because they were wearing a helmet. Bob O'Connor is chair of the University of Virginia's Department of Emergency Medicine. Virginia Humanities has a new paid fellowship opportunity for educators committed to creating inclusive learning experiences for a Virginia K-12 classroom. Selected candidates will be funded through a National Endowment for the Humanities Sustaining the Humanities grant. Applications are due by January 7th. Please find more at virginiahumanities.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Happy holidays from all of us here at With Good Reason, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.